You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would help us as we conclude our thoughts about religious liberty. I ask for the gift of your spirit to work with us in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was on my mountain walking down it when I saw a new dog. You might wonder how I would ever identify a new dog, but dogs are territorial. And the dogs in our mountain have kind of carved up the mountain and they have, you know, their own spots. And I knew I didn't recognize this one at all. And she was ferocious. She came right up to my leg. She was barking so, curling her lips, showing her fangs. You could feel the breath. And, uh, and I had a pretty good guess why she was doing it. You could see that she was a mother and that she probably had puppies nearby. And then I saw the puppies. They were hanging out in the Buddha shrine that was right there, and it knocked all the paraphernalia all over the place in their playfulness. And uh, that is just where the puppies were. And I determined to make friends with that dog because she was barking at everyone walking, at every bicycle, at every car, and it's the only way out from our school. And so I decided I need to, and I did. I won't tell you how, I'll just tell you I befriended her. I named her Susie, Susie Q to be particular. And I'll tell you, when I made friends with Susie, she was born again. <laughs> she had a complete change of heart. Where before she was ferocious, now she was the most loving dog. She loved people now. What had happened is someone had abandoned her on our mountain at the most vulnerable of times, you know, when she's just had puppies, at the very time when she most needs to be fed and cared for and loved and nurtured, she suddenly had hardship and it made her insecure. And when dogs are insecure, they act out. You know, people are like that too. And, uh, and so... As soon as she knew that I wasn't dangerous, her insecurity went away. And then her love replaced it. You have Bibles with you. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 18. 1 John chapter 4, looking at verse 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because love involves torment. I think you can see all of that in Susie Q's life. Did she enjoy being a ferocious dog? No. It was very hard on her. She much preferred being a loving dog. Much preferred. What cast out the fear? That was love. And what I told you last hour is that it works the other way too, that uh, fear cast out love. You know, it's one or the two. It's not both. So that what God is really working at is to create in us 
love for him. And what Satan's really working to do is to create in us fear of him. Because Satan knows if we fear him, we're going to act out. And I would just say to those of you who are parents and teachers, and that includes all pastors and all missionaries, and uncles and aunts that raise their nephews and nieces and grandparents that raise their grandkids, that's all of you now, right? I would say to you, watch this. It's very dangerous how teachers and parents give all the warmth and love to little Miss Goody Two-Shoes and give all the justice and consequences to little Mr. Shenanigans. It's a huge mistake. The truth is that Susie needs love more than most dogs. And if she gets it, she's going to be more loving than most dogs. The children and the church members that act the most willful and problematic, they have the strongest personalities. And if they're born again, they become movers and shakers and get a lot of work done. And the I don't want to speak badly about Miss Two Shoes, but I just want to say about her that she's sweet and meek and devotional and obedient. But for her to be very useful, she has to have someone like that to follow. She needs someone to get behind so she can make her best contribution. Yeah, let's get her to heaven, but for sure, if she's going to be useful to the church, we need that person too. The mistake that we make as a church is that we love on the compliant people and we we don't on the... What's the opposite of compliant? Non-compliant. Rebellious. I see. I don't even see one person here wearing a mask. I can hardly imagine this, that I'm in a group of people this big and no one's wearing a mask. Yeah, but isn't there anyone who's really afraid? No. Perfect love casts out fear. But not of COVID. We are not, listen, I wasn't afraid of COVID before I got it. It bumped me in, and I'm still not afraid of it. If it comes and takes me out tomorrow, that's great. <laughs> no, it's not. My husband's got his vaccine. So I don't want to change the topic, but I want you to understand we really need the strong people in the church. We need their energy. We need their commitment. One thing that's helped the church in North America is that when strong people have taken their own initiative, the church has had a tendency to smile on it, to say, good for you doing something. But in many parts of the world, when people take their own initiative, they are decried as troublers of the sea, as uh, people who are out of line and, and not getting, you know, they're, they're not following protocol. And I just hope if you follow my advice and move away that you'll take with you an understanding that we need Susie Q. One more thing about her. She stopped barking at people walking. She stopped barking at cars. And she stopped barking at most bicycles. But when she was still ferocious, some people on bicycles threw stones at her. And even after she was born again, she didn't forget that. And she still barked at those bicyclers. And uh, if you just think that through, you'll figure some things out. And um, I was in the UK 
This is the story for adults. That was for children. I was in the UK, and uh, I was going to be speaking to a church. This was near Birmingham. Birmingham feels more Islamic than most Islamic countries. Like, I did not see nearly as many burqas in Jordan as I saw in Birmingham. I don't see nearly as many in Malaysia or Indonesia as I see in Birmingham. It just feels different. But anyway, I was, I was preaching at a church near there, and... Um, People knew I was going to be addressing the ministry that we do for the Muslim population. If you ever want to support it, the information is there. And uh, they knew that. And so as I was speaking, some people came in late. And just looking at them, I suspected that three or four of them were Muslims or former Muslims. They just had the look to be from those regions of the world. And I suspected it. And one of them in particular that caught my eye, she she was from Bangladesh, but I didn't know that till later. One of them, she, while I was talking, she just got up. She's like in the third row from the front, so it was pretty prominent. She got up and just walked out. And I really was trying to preach in a way that wouldn't hurt them, you know? And so I didn't know what I'd done. And she came back and she went out again. And it happened a few times. And when that happens to me, I don't know what you do when you speak, but when I know someone is upset, I target them immediately after the sermon because they might escape too fast. And they might make a beeline for the car and be gone. So as soon as I could get out, it was straight to her. Her name is Samiha. And I found out it had nothing to do with my sermon. She probably couldn't even listen to my sermon. She was too nervous to be, that she would be seen when she left the church. And when she would think about it, she would have afraid she'd faint. And she didn't want to faint in front of everybody. That's what was going on. She had to escape because she was afraid she was going to faint. And uh, so, so stressed. Because you have to leave the church once you come in. You know, as you're coming in, you can look every direction. But what do you do when you're going out? It was, it, was, it was scaring her big time. So I was, I'd only been working for Muslims for two years at this point, And even now, I think I bungle a lot. But I was more bungling then than I am now. And I took her into the back room with my wife and another Bible worker, a lady there, a friend of mine. And I gave her a Bible study on Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And looking back, I can say no one who's that emotional can even comprehend anything of what I was trying to share You just, when you're feeling like that, you just can't follow that. But she didn't get angry. She just endured it. And um, then it was time to eat. So we went in to the fellowship hall. This is pre-COVID, you know. And uh, she sat down near Heidi and I, but not with us, maybe three seats away. The church had a female Bible worker and a male Bible worker, and they sat on either side of her. And I thought I could tell that that male Bible worker thought she was pretty cute. (laughs) That's what it looked like to me. And and right there while she was eating, she started to stand up and she fainted right away. And as she fell, he grabbed her arm and it hurt her. (laughs) You know, when someone's falling and you grab their arm... Anyway, if you're going to grab someone's fallen, you need 
good support or else just let him go. I don't know what to tell you. But anyway, so she got a little bit hurt, but not badly. And she woke up right away. But I think even you, if you're a lady, would know how she feels. She's mortified. All these strangers and she just fainted away. And all she wants to do is get out of the room. And so the female Bible worker helped her up and out they went out of the room and I followed them. So I didn't want this to be her last experience, you know, like I wanted something better than this for a final memory. <laughs> so, so I followed her out and we had a good talk out there in the foyer. But I want to tell you what happened inside the room after we left. This is my wife's version of the story, which is the only version I ever heard. My wife was right across from a man and she saw him kind of start and his face soured and she looked and two people were just coming in to the, to the fellowship meal to eat, a man and a woman. They hadn't been to church, they just bombed the potluck. Does that ever happen in Michigan? They just came for the food and so here they came to eat and the man across my wife, you could see he was visibly getting more and more agitated, more and more upset. And as they sat down, he got up and he walked over to that couple and he went to the man and he punched him. Here's the backstory I learned later. It really happened. You can start counting again if I messed you up. <laughs> what happened is that the lady was Mr. Angry Man's wife. And she had left him for this other guy some weeks before. And he was still really smarting over it. And the boldness of her to come to the same church where he was attending with the guy, it just boiled in him. And I think that punching someone is never a good idea, but I even suspect in heaven he won't be punished for that as much as you would for most punches. <laughs> you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. And, uh, and, oh, don't get me wrong, this couple, the three of them, are not related to Samiha. She's out in the foyer with me. Oh, I, she, didn't she didn't see any of it. Oh. And, and what I'm telling you is what you just heard was the great controversy. It was Satan orchestrating events so that Samiha, who has had violence in her past, would see violence in a Christian church. In all my life, I've never seen violence in a Christian church. But Samiha came this close to seeing it in her first time ever attending. That was the devil. And God getting her out, that was God. Which happened because she Samiha today is a baptized Seventh-day Adventist. Wow. She's a missionary working to reach her own people. When I went to Bangladesh, she was shocked to find out that there are Adventists in Bangladesh. She thought that she was like the only Bengali Adventist. And she didn't know that there's like you know tens of thousands of them. It was quite a revelation to her. And uh, you can just, what I'm telling you is if you'll get involved in reaching unreached people, the great controversy will happen right in front of your eyes. You'll see what's going on 
because the devil and God are both really serious about this business, and God is more powerful, thankfully. So it's working out lots of the time. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you use the link for Jesus for Asia, be sure to look for our work. Because Jesus for Asia isn't our ministry. It's an umbrella of dozens of good ministries. And if you just send money and say, use it wherever it's needed, for sure, it won't come to us. <laughs> for sure. So if you wanted to do that, um, yeah, look. Are you in 1 Corinthians 8? Look at verse 2. Well, we need verse 1 also. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If I could picture that for you, it's the difference between a puffer fish. You know, the puffer fish is puffed up, but he doesn't weigh very much. That is, love builds up, and knowledge puffs up. If you can just sort of see the two, they're quite different. One has content and one is hollow. That's the idea. And which one has content? Love has content. And which one is hollow? Knowledge is hollow. I don't say knowledge has no value. Why? I've put a lot of my effort into getting some. I don't say knowledge has no value, but comparatively, it has little I'm sure that love helped Samiha much more than knowledge did. So the female Bible worker had more to do with it than my Daniel 2 study. If you, if you understand what I'm trying to say. More to do. Love builds up. Verse 2. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. A.T. Jones once preached on this verse. He said, I'm, I'm summarizing the whole sermon, that you might know the truth of the three angels' messages, you might know the truth about religious liberty, you might know, but as soon as you think you know something well, that's evidence that you don't know it very well. That if any man thinks he knows anything, he doesn't know it well enough. And he was speaking specifically when he preached about righteousness by faith. You know, Many persons in 1888 rejected Jones and Wagner, not because they disagreed with them. Some did disagree, but many rejected them because they considered it old hat. They had already encountered it. They knew it. They didn't need to hear it again, which is just so contrary to the truth. Verse 3, If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. That's a helpful verse if you get perplexed by like Matthew 7, depart from me you that work lawlessness, I never... You see this is a helpful verse. But if anyone loves God, the same one is known of him. Therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world and that there is no other God but one. Let's stop there for a minute and review our early church history. In the early church history, the Gentiles were not keeping all of the Jewish rituals and programs because Paul wasn't teaching those things. 
the Jewish Christians were keeping those things because it was part of the culture they'd grown up with, and they added to it Christianity. And they became very insecure because the Gentiles were growing and growing, and it looked apparent they're going to outnumber us soon. And if they outnumber us, what's going to happen to all these important things that we do, like circumcision, for example? What's going to happen to those? It seemed like, like dangerous business coming. So there was a conflict and it, not this kind, but this kind. And in the conflict, there was real argument. And so in Acts 15, they convened a general conference meeting. It's why we do it today. They convened to talk about it. They talked it through, and they concluded that you don't even have to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. No, no, not really. Just listen. They weren't talking about the Ten Commandments. That wasn't the question, so it wasn't addressed. They talked about, what about the things... I told you about the yesterday about the moral laws, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the health laws. In the Bible, these are called judgments. These are called commandments. These are called... Well, I'm, I'm going to get to the word statutes, and I, I almost used the word, but I didn't want to confuse anyone. Ordinances in the New Testament is, is what they're called. Thank you. Statutes, I didn't write up here, but statutes in the Old Testament in English quite often refer to moral laws that aren't intuitively connected to the Ten Commandments. For example, tithing is enforced by the commandment, thou shalt not steal. But you might not gather that from reading the commandment, thou shalt not steal. And hatred is condemned by the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. But you might not gather that by reading the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Morality isn't intuitive. Paul himself said he would not have known that lust was a sin, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. He must have been thinking the first part, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. If it hadn't been for the law, he wouldn't have known that that was wrong. Do you follow what I'm saying when I said the, the, the morality is not intuitive? So we have the commandments and we have the statutes. The statutes aren't new laws, but they help us see the real application. And what you have in 1 Corinthians 15 is four laws that are given that might have seemed to some people like they ended at the cross, and the Jews were saying, no, these are enforced by the moral law. One of them was no fornication. You know, the commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But you might not know from that that it's wrong to have sex before marriage. You might not know from that that homosexuality is sinful, the practice of it. You might not gather some of these things if you're reading there. And so, but they are, and the early church said, hey, Gentiles, this no fornication business is still important. And it said, well, there's two versions. Let's look. Can you keep a finger here and then turn to 1 Corinthians 15? Keep a finger here, and I mean to Acts 15. I want you to see how committees affected things. Because you can see that committees change the wording of an idea. And, if, and as soon as you see it in the Bible, you will, you'll see it all over. Acts chapter 15, and we are looking at uh, 
Let me just find it. We'll look at verse 19. This is the original, the, the motion that was made. Therefore I judge, I think this is James speaking, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those who from among the Gentiles are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. You see, he, he said they need to keep the health principles and they need to keep the moral law as is shown in the statutes, if you will. That's what they're saying. Well, it went through committee work. And after committee work, you can find the final version of it in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you do well. In verse 20, it was things polluted by idols. But in verse 29, it was things offered to idols. And what typically gets offered to idols? Food. Why, in Malaysia, a lot of food gets offered to idols. And I think most of it is eaten by dogs. I think. You need to put your shrine pretty high if you don't want the dogs to eat it. Because no one feeds the dogs. And the dogs have all learned that Buddhism is a great religion. And, uh, yeah, except if you, if you put fruit in there, that's pretty much dog-proof. Uh, the, the, the dogs will really get angry at you for being that kind of Buddhist. And, um, yes, the monkeys are, most monkeys are afraid to come in town. Uh, the, but the, there is a kind, the long-tailed macaques, they will fight with you for your food. This is so off-topic, but I want you to understand in Acts chapter 15, is that it's really important to the church that these idolaters don't slip back into idolatry by honoring idols. Can you sense that, that this could be a real danger, that idolaters could slip back into idolatry? If you don't sense the danger of that, you haven't read the Old Testament very well. Because Israel, like it happens like every generation, like for hundreds of years, so the church is very concerned, and they say, keep your distance from idolatry. Don't eat things offered to idols. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 8, because you're going to see a little contrast here. 1 Corinthians 8, and we're looking at verse, what did we just read? Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is just one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And if you're reading that, it might lead you to become non-Trinitarian. And so let me just speak that in verse 6, like in many parts of the Bible, the word God is synonymous for the Father. It's just that way in many places in the Bible. Verse 7, there, However, there is not in every one that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
How does this work? I go in Malaysia, I eat in a lot of Buddhist restaurants. And I think probably almost everything there has probably been offered to idols. I never asked, but that's what I suppose. It probably all has been offered to idols. <laughs> and uh, it, it, they're vegetarian. In my village, they put the food in their little shrine and they leave it there. And then I don't know how it disappears. I'm pretty sure the, the gods aren't taking it. And uh, so something like that. Uh, yeah, a lot of them use incense and a lot of them use food. Yeah. There's generally incense in my village. Uh, and in the restaurants, less often there's incense. And uh, so I eat in these restaurants quite a bit. And when I eat that food, I'm thinking like this. This food was created by God for me. And he said I can eat of it freely. And if someone offered it to Buddha, he's been dead a long time and it doesn't bother me one bit. That's about how I think about it. But some of my converts from Buddhism, it's possible when they eat that, they're thinking, this is part of heathen worship. This is part of idolatry. And if, if they see me eating it and they eat it too, they could do something that they believe is wrong. Not that it is wrong, but them believing it is wrong makes it wrong for them. And in this passage, them believing it's wrong even makes it wrong for me. Because I care about them. Do you see it in the passage? Yeah. Verse, verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we eat not are we the worse. This has nothing to do with health. What's the context? Yeah, that's the, the context is this question about idols. Verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish? That's a serious effect. For whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against your brother... What kind of sin is it when I go ahead and eat the food there? In this verse, it sounds more like murder. I'm sinning against who? Yeah, in, the, in the verse, it says brother, right? Sinning against my brother, it says. But yeah, it surely is against Christ. That's the rest of the verse. When I sin against the brother and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat flesh, lest I make my brother stumble. This chapter isn't hardly relevant to us in terms of the specific issue of eating food offered to idols. Because there are very few Buddhists in America who are going to be emboldened by you eating in the Chinese restaurants here. It's not likely to be a common scenario, what we're reading here. But there's a lot of parallel in the business of health. Parallels in the question of ivermectin, did I say that right? 
and the various vaccines and the, the way that we approach these things. Ironically, at my home right now, my wife has a best friend named Jamie, and Jamie has been pushing my wife for a month to take ivermectin. As it, I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's an anti-parasitic. An, an anti-parasitic drug that's quite excellent for treating parasites. And I, I've looked into it physiologically, and I just cannot figure out why it would be helpful with, with this illness. But there are thousands of people, many of which are my friends, who say it's the best. And, uh, well, Jamie is one of them. And so Jamie's been telling my wife she must take it prophylactically, like, like take it as a precaution. And I, I personally don't like the idea of taking medication as a precaution. <laughs> I, like, I think let's just avoid it until we really must. That, that's about how I relate to it. And you're a dentist, right? So you might think I go over the top of this, but I'll confess to you. Uh, I've had rheumatic fever. And consequently, in my suitcase, I have some antibiotics that I have been told I should take for the rest of my life as a precaution against getting strep. Well, it's been 12 years and I haven't taken them yet. But I have them with me just in case I ever start to get strep. You know, if it ever happens, I'm ready. But I just can't imagine taking antibiotics for 50 years. I'd rather take the risk. So, so I, I have them in my, in my suitcase. And if you don't understand that, don't even worry about it. But I'm going to tell you, Jamie and my wife both got COVID the same week. And Jamie's been taking ivermectin for a long time, and my wife hasn't. And today my wife called me crying because Jamie is gasping for air on the way to the hospital. She's really in distress. She has comorbidities. And, uh, and my wife is worried that Jamie might not live. Ivermectin didn't do it in this case. Maybe it does in other cases. I don't know. My wife's doing okay. She didn't take any yet. I don't think she's going to. Maybe good for her, but what I want to say is not that those who are against ivermectin are right. I just want to say that we need grace. We, we can't afford to have convictions for anyone else. Jamie can't afford to feel great distress over my wife's not taking of ivermectin. And Heidi can't afford to feel great distress over Jamie's taking of it. That, that I can't afford to let myself be highly troubled by your responsible and irresponsible choices. Uh, reading through the archive, I found Ellen White writing a letter about this, but I didn't bring the reference because I didn't plan to talk about it. But she mentioned that she was trying to help people in the Battle Creek scenario, trying to convince them not to send their children there. But she wrote in one letter she just had to give up. She said if she kept agitating herself, it was going to wear her down. Her health was going to be worn down by it. She couldn't afford to carry it. They are going to have to carry it themselves. Well, that's just wonderful wisdom for all of us. We just can't afford to have convictions for other people. So what does it mean? I need to realize that some people are just wrong about important things. In 1 Corinthians 8, the people are wrong about idols. They really think that when you offer something to an idol, you've defiled it. 
They really believe that idols are capable of receiving worship when it isn't true at all. An idol is nothing and there isn't any God but one. They're wrong, but they're, the fact that they're wrong doesn't make their conscience um, irrelevant. We really are going to have to give a lot of respect to people that are wrong and Maybe we're wrong, you know what I mean? But Maybe, but let's just look at it from our angle. They're wrong, we're right, but they're going to have to have a lot of respect, so much respect that I'm even going to encourage them to go forward the way they think is best. Do you remember what we learned in chapter 14? It's like, I mean, Romans 14, not 1 Corinthians 14. Yesterday, should we receive people that have weak consciences? Verse 1 says Yes. You and I can fellowship in church together without agreeing, but there's a limit in verse 1. If you weren't here, you might look it up for your own benefit. 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says, no, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, Romans, thank you. Romans 14.1, it's today, it's 1 Corinthians. Anyway, yes, Romans 14.1, them that are weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. That is, Paul said, you and I can be together in church, but if we start to argue about the doubtful questions, that's going to ruin our mission. As soon as we make an issue of it, it's going to ruin our ability to take the three angels' messages to the world. We can't do it. We're going to have to say that I'm not going to fight with you on that, and if you want to preach to me over and over and over on it, I might be too busy to listen sometime. Uh, I can't afford to let these issues become the dominant issues. So what I would say to you, I would try to be respectful. I would say, is it Kathy? Is that your name? Let's say that you're one of those who's writing me. You're not. I'd say, Kathy, I appreciate that you have a right to believe as you do and that you're highly sincere and that this is important to you. And I want you to be conscientious. I hope you can appreciate that I've also did my due diligence, and I think I've made my conclusions on this topic, and I can't invest any more time in it. Is that okay with you? Does that sound respectful to you? Yes. But what we're really inclined to do is, how in the world can you believe that? Because there's a lot of nonsense going around. And I feel in my heart to be a fact checker. You know, like... My whole personality is, is to be Snopes for Adventism. <laughs> but it isn't best. We really can't afford it. We're going to have to give people some rights to have different opinions from the propaganda machines, but what we'd have to do is bring their mind back to the Three Angels' messages. The three angels' messages, let's look at that. We only have 14 minutes left. Look at Ro Revelation. I almost said Romans 14 again. Revelation 14. And I want you to see the religious liberty issue in verse 8. Revelation chapter 14. And we're looking at verse 8. And another angel followed, saying with, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, listen carefully, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's too many prepositions for people who watch YouTube. So let me say that in other words. 
Babylon is really corrupting the planet. She's doing that with false doctrines. That's her wine. Those false doctrines include the union of church and state. That's the fornication. So that false doctrine of union of church and state that's corrupting the world, she's using that to compel everyone, to force everyone to do what she wants. Have you ever heard the name John Cotton? Probably in seventh grade you heard about him, but it might have been ever since then you hadn't. John Cotton was one of the leading ministers of the Puritan colony in Massachusetts. He was one of the leading ministers there, and he's the one who formulated the idea that we should persecute people who don't teach the Puritan views. He gained it from the Bible the same way Augustine had done it, you know, a full 1,200 years before him. What he said, he took that parable of the, you know, the wedding feasts where go out into the highways and the byways, and Jesus said in the parable, compel them to come in. Compel. What does that mean? Augustine and John Cotton both understood it the same way. They understood that you should use force. What I'm telling you is they were wrong. You should use persuasion. We compel by persuasion. We share by persuasion, not by force. But John Cotton, he said that that heresy is like gangrene. You've got to cut it off. It's like a wolf. You've got to kill it to save the sheep. He had all these metaphors that he used to justify forcing people to follow. But what Roger Williams would say back to him is don't interpose between God and the people. Roger Williams, when he had Rhode Island, he said, listen, I don't, I don't like the Quaker teachings any more than you do. I think they're as heretical and soul-damning as you do. But there in Massachusetts, you strip those Quakers to the waist and you flog them and drag them through the city and they come right back the next week. All we do here in Rhode Island is we preach and show that their doctrines are wrong and they don't come back. I remember when GYC was just getting started that the shepherd's rod began to attend the meetings and they were passing out their literature. And I remember the young administration trying to to crush it with authority. Don't you pass that out. Don't accept anything from them. Don't. That's what they were saying. And I didn't feel badly towards them, but I knew that that's not going to work. When you try to crush it with authority, there's always going to be a few hundred people that it just makes them more curious. Just makes them wonder, what's in this persecuted material anyway? Why all the angst? Why all the stress? I say, if you will just teach them the truth, that will work. If you teach them the truth, then they don't have any way to respond sensibly. Can I teach you the truth about the shepherd's rod for just a minute? The shepherd's rod teach that Ezekiel 9, you know Ezekiel 9, that's the slaughter with the, you know, the ink horn and then the six of the slaughtering weapons. The shepherd's rod teach that God is going to kill you to purify the church so the shepherd's rod are left alive as the pure ones 
and then the latter rain is going to be poured out, and the gospel will go to the world. It's quite a theory. Some of them believe that they're going to be the angels that kill you. It varies a bit between them. But, but this important doctrine of theirs takes away from them any burden to do evangelism today. It's not the time yet. Right now, their teaching would be that it's the time to reach Seventh-day Adventists before they're slaughtered. I say it's just the way the devil works. Here's, here's seven billion people that don't know the left hand from the right, and God is asking us all to go help them, and the shepherd's rod takes tens of thousands and gets them doing nothing but ignoring them. That's exactly what they would do. But can I just tell you about Ezekiel 9? Shepherd's rod will quote from Testimonies Volume 2 because it fits with their teaching. It talks about how Ezekiel 9 is going to kill the unfaithful in the church. They quote it over and over and over. But that section doesn't tell you when it's going to happen. The Great Controversy book does tell you that purification of the church happens after the close of probation. It's after probation close, closes that God ends up destroying the unfaithful people. It's afterwards. And you know that's a bit late for evangelism? With reference to Ezekiel 9? Yes, exactly. Yeah, quoting Ezekiel 9. And uh, it just settles it plainly. That the whole thing, the whole scheme is an error. And teaching that, should I use the illustration of a vaccine? <laughs> Inoculates the congregation much better than threats and telling them, don't read it, don't read it, don't read it. So that's what Roger Williams discovered. He discovered that religious liberty combined with education produces much better results than rules and strict enforcement. If you're involved in education, you might think this through. On the secondary level, it's so important. It's still true today that liberty plus education has a very different impact than strictness well enforced. Oh, should we enforce our rules in secondary schools? We should. Ellen White says that we should have few rules, well-chosen Strictly enforced. What was the first word of those six? Yeah, few. Yeah, few. Well, I have seven minutes and 49 verses left. And um, let's just pick something for you. Uh, look at Rev Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and looking at verse 19. Then we're going to do a brief review and close. Romans 12 and verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he is thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. I told you yesterday how feeding some of those Muslim families in Borneo made all the difference in our work for them. What I'm saying to you here is that do not think that the 
nonviolent life of Jesus on earth is designed to show us the way God is going to deal with sin. Jesus lived on earth a way to show us how to live. And you and I are not to avenge ourselves. So Jesus did not avenge himself on earth because he was making an example for who? That's for us. But will there be vengeance? God says, don't avenge yourself because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Yes, it's going to happen. Don't think that you can take the picture of Jesus and say, since Jesus didn't do it, therefore it's not going to happen. No, no. In fact, Jesus mentioned it many times. He said there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said there's going to be fire. He said, don't fear those who can kill the body only and have no power to destroy the soul. Yeah, that's exactly true. So let's use our four minutes for review. This is always risky for teachers. Do you remember anything from the six hours here? Well, you start out with that and then you kind of went back around to it. So let's, let's just actually say it out loud and I'll repeat it for the recording. What's something that you've learned or that you remember from these last two days, today and yesterday? Who has... What? Liberty. Okay, liberty. Maybe you're thinking the idea that no one can take away our liberty. That we have the liberty to do right no matter what kind of pressure is put on us. Whether they twist our arms or threaten us, no one can take away our liberty. Good. Remember anything else? What's something? Don't try to control another's conscience. Yeah, we can't afford it. To his own master he stands or falls, right? Who are you that judges another man? God is able to make him stand, even if he is bungling. You're bungling too, so just live with it. Yeah, we can't afford it. Good. Someone else remember something? Yes. Uh, the correlation between authority and responsibility. That they're precisely correlated, right? That God gives us authority because he gives us responsibility. He must give us enough authority to carry out our responsibilities. Parents, that's why your authority diminishes as your children get older because your responsibility diminishes at the same time. Do you remember anything else? Yes. That's it. Faithfulness doesn't always end with a happy story. It doesn't always. Sometimes it leads to being crucified upside down. You, we shouldn't teach in our Sabbath school lesson the idea that everyone who does right, they, they end up with roses. No, sometimes they just really lose. But ultimately, they don't lose. Ultimately, in heaven, we get it. Jesus said the strangest thing. He said that some of you they will kill, not one hair of your head will perish. He said That's two verses in a row. You think it through, it seems almost contradictory. That's because the hair is talking about ultimately. That sure, they'll kill you, but they can't... Alt- Ro- Roji, the one that was killed... Uh, not a hair of his head is going to ultimately perish. Remember anything else? What's something? Um, for all the souls that you try to win, is it when you lose souls, God wins? Yeah, or maybe like this, that I can't see everything, but I try, 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 fail, 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 and then I see a success. Mm-hmm. And the real danger is that Satan, after our first failure, would say, you can't do it, it doesn't work. Right. Give up. Yeah, so just keep trying. Thank you. You remember something. Um, a little lie is not the truth. Yeah, the commandment forbids even the tiny ones. That was what Sajjad discovered. 
it just broke his heart that he'd been doing these little things wrong and he thought he was a pretty good boy. He was born again there south of Baghdad, reading Patriarchs and Prophets, something that you haven't done in a long time. Very good. Do you remember anything else? Yes. Yeah, it's a terrible book. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. He didn't say, quote them profusely. <laughs> right? Yeah, so that. We, we could, and, and why is it a bad idea? Not just because the Quran is a bad book, but because the Holy Spirit has been working before you get started. So already, many of them have doubts. And we don't want to confuse them by using that source. Remember something. And boy, we could have dug into that more. I have one whole minute. I suggest to you Titus 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, For we also ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, hateful and hating one another. That's verse 3. In other words, we were just like the worst people we've ever met. That was we. Verse 4 says, But after that, the love and kindness of God toward man appeared. So that's what did it. Titus 3, verse 3 and 4. I saw some of you were looking real quick, and so you can find it real slow now. Titus 3, 3 and 4. The love of God is what changes people. Do you hear anything else before we close? Yes. Uh, if you want to support, you keep your... <laughs> yeah, you can use the link. Very good. Make sure you, make sure you say it. You, you look for Eugene Thurman. Yeah, you got to or it won't work. That's exactly right. But hey, I, I'm not the only ministry on that list that needs help. So like, don't feel like you need to limit to me for sure. Don't, yes. But you need the help right now, right? I think always the more help I get, the more I do. Yeah, let's just put it that way. I think okay. that's just, you go ahead. Very important principle that we don't have to agree in church, but we need to avoid arguments that distract us from our mission. We have to put up a limit and say, let's not fight. I, I hired a ladies' dean who was a non-Trinitarian in Malaysia. I knew it. And she knew it, but we both agreed this isn't the message. She wasn't trying to carry her views to the world, and I wasn't trying to carry mine to the world. We were both trying to take the funeral's messages to the planet. I would have kept her, but she fell in love with someone and got married, and they didn't want to live in Malaysia anymore. And Anyway, she's gone, but I would have kept her. Yeah, we, we, we don't want to argue over non-essentials. Anything else you remember? That's pretty good, but you have something, sir. In due season you shall reap if you faint not. It's a Bible promise, isn't it? And it's so beside all waters because we don't know what's going to prof profit this or that, or maybe both alike will be good. Yeah, so we can just really... We can really be generous with our efforts. You remember something. Oh, I really like the fact that you said uh, that it's okay to have those uh, non-good two-shoes in the church because they're moving the shakers and can be channeled in a good direction. Yeah. Are you one of the goody two-shoes? No. no. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. I'm sorry to have to confess it, but I'm one of those really bad ones. One of the really useful ones. Okay. <laughs> they so gave you, me two positions, and they it's like, why? They must have been digging the bottom, <laughs> So it's, it is an important point that we need the strong-willed people. We need them, and we really mess ourselves up when we 
Have you read that in 2 Corinthians 2? The man that was disfellowshipped for having an affair with his stepmother. The church really, they tried to protect him first. Paul said, no, you have to remove him from the church. So they finally did it. And when they did it, they gave him the cold shoulder to boot. And Paul said, no, it was enough to separate him. But now you need to confirm your love toward him. It's sufficient for him, this punishment that was inflicted by all. Do you remember anything else from the last two days? Yes. What if um, some people call things doubtful, dis- doubts, doubtful disputations that aren't? Okay, so this is a good question. Who has a right to say? And I think that God has given us a few guidelines. So let me just see if I can give. I'm over time, so I'm not going to make it really long, but I like the question. First of all, what God gave us was a message. That's the three angels' messages. It needs to go to the world. So creation, the judgment, the everlasting gospel, the Babylon, the fall of Babylon, the mark of the beast, the seal of God, the commandments, the faith of Jesus. You know, these are all in there, right? Those things are non-negotiable because that is our work. If we don't agree on that, we can't even work together. Then... On the other things, uh, if studious, consecrated people who look at it carefully can't see it eye to eye, that sounds like a doubtful disputation. That's what I understand from Romans 14. So, sure, people argue about the Sabbath, but it looks like on the Sabbath, the question is, do you want to keep it? If you're willing to keep it, then you find the fact that it was created for man. If you don't want to keep it, you find out that every day is alike. Uh, What you find is related to what you want to find. I probably can't help you more than that, except to say what you already know, but maybe they don't all know. And that is that when you come up with a new idea about the meaning of the Bible, that you bounce it off brethren of experience. Everyone knows that's difficult to even find them. Uh, I know, it's difficult. But you bounce it off brethren of experience, and if they don't see any light in it, that doesn't mean you're wrong, but it means it's not a message for the church. It doesn't mean you're wrong, but it's not a message for the church. And that prevents us from spending our time on the periphery things when there's so much work that needs to be done in the central things. I know that. In other words, you're saying that you just want to concentrate on the mission of the church, but ignore the little things that people... I don't know if ignore is the right word, but not argue. Like, I can study about many other things... I can study about almost any other thing that's in the Bible, but I won't do it to the point of making a fight over it in church, not to the point of making a test over it or an issue over it where you're not a good teacher if you disagree with me. What we're warned against in Ellen White's writings is against false tests. We can't afford to make them. God will not bring up a test that he doesn't bring to the church as a whole, I think you might know from the first volume of testimonies how that good Stephen Haskell, like one of the good guys in our church history, like he's pretty good all the way through. There's not a lot of those. Stephen Haskell, a good guy, he, he discovered that you shouldn't eat pork if you're a Christian. In his little church in South Lancaster, he made that a test of fellowship. You can't be baptized here if you eat pork. He was rebuked through Ellen White, not for his position on pork, but for making it a test in a local church. 
God doesn't want the different churches of Adventism to have different tests of fellowship. It's not the way the church ought to grow. We need to be united in, in what we make a test issue. And he, he made a mistake to make this a condition. Now, if someone from South Lancaster goes to Battle Creek, they're going to be perplexed at all the pork chops being eaten. You know, we, we need to move together. All right, well, we've gone way over time. But the reason I do reviews is to move things from short-term to long-term memory. That's really important to move them from short-term to long-term memory. Otherwise, teaching is more like education. Excuse me, more like entertainment. I want to say education becomes entertainment if you don't do reviews. Let's pray and we'll be done. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would help us to get down out of the tree and get to safety. That you would help us to find a way to be useful for those people who have very few opportunities. And that you'd save us from making false tests and being distracted from the great work that needs to be done. I ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.